and welcome to Panorama. I am your co-host, Dan Torres, and I am joined here with Sarah Robertson. Hey, Sarah. Hey, Dan. Who do we have on the show today? Today, we have Luke Kemp, who is a research associate at the Center for the Study of Existential Risk at the University of Cambridge in the UK. Very interesting article was published about climate change, Sarah. I know we've talked a lot about it on this show, but this article really caused me to to sit up straight and read and find out about the potential risk for more catastrophic climate change possibilities. As we're recording this, a hurricane has gone through the state of Florida and caused mass devastation. It's great that we can maybe connect this back to climate change. So, Luke Kemp, thanks for joining us here on Panorama. Sarah, Dan, my pleasure. Okay, so let's get started about the reality of climate change today. How fast is climate change happening in relation to the planet's existence? Give us a a quick synopsis of the climate change science that we have today. The planet has warmed by approximately 1.2 to 1.3 degrees Celsius. That's a global mean annual temperature above pre-industrial levels. So essentially since 1850, we've had roughly 1.2 to 1.3 degrees warming globally. That is incredibly quick by geological and historical scales. So when you look at some of the biggest mass extinction events throughout history, there's been five of them, and they've all been connected to climatic change in some way. Four of them's warming and one of them's cooling. And in those cases, you had rises in temperature up to six to eight degrees Celsius, And that took usually on the time span of thousands of years. What we're looking at here in terms of the rate of warming is geologically unprecedented. It's an order of magnitude quicker than the warming we had during what's called the Great Permian Dying, the largest mass extinction event in history, which led to the elimination of roughly 90% of the biosphere. I came across an article that said something like 1,050 climate records happened in the month of July, just here in the United States. And then also, even in Europe, we also experienced a record heat. In Spain, for example, they had temperature of about 104 Fahrenheit in the month of May, which is about 50 to 59 degrees higher than normal. I mean, so so we talk about how quickly it's changing. Can you talk a little bit about the record breaking? Is this year, recent years, much worse than maybe five, 10 years ago. Can you talk a little bit about that? These record-breaking events are entirely predictable, and they were all in line with the predictions of the IPCC, even dating back to the 1990s. It's well known that not only we're going to be facing on additions, but we're going to also going to have worse extremes, including obviously extreme weather events. Mm. So I wouldn't actually get too preoccupied with the fact that these things are record-breaking because they're going to be record-breaking again next year and the year after that. Mm. And... In a decade's time, this will seem quite cool by comparison. Right. So we shouldn't become too preoccupied with record setting per se and much more of the overall trend and what that means. And I'm glad you mentioned that because you're the lead author of an article in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences where you discuss the possibility of catastrophic climate change. Well, why did you write this article and what does it say about the IP, IPCC reports on climate change and, and what are they overlooking? There's two main reasons as to why we decided to write this article. One was, for me, I knew a lot of climate scientists and earth system scientists who took the idea of catastrophic climate change very seriously and personally had very grave concerns. And yet there was still a sheer lack of literature 
and analysis on these kinds of scenarios. And I thought that gap needed to be bridged. And secondly, was a frustration with how existing work deals with the idea of extreme climate change. And there's really kind of two ways in which you try to think about the damages. One is what are called integrated assessment models, which are used mainly by economists. And these tend to lead to very optimistic, rosy projections of in the future, even four degrees or three degrees could only lead to the loss of a couple of GDP points. And that's been highly contested. These models are incredibly simplistic and they have such a number of limitations and flaws, but I don't think we should take them seriously. On the other hand, we also have people who've basically tried to analyze climate change as a catastrophic risk by just simply looking at a really basic idea like, is it likely to stop all food production? Or is it likely to make every area on earth uninhabitable? And that's also just an incredibly weird, artificial and simplistic way of trying to think about climate catastrophe. So it was the lack of literature, the disconnect between what scientists thought and what they actually seem to be studying, and the simplistic nature of risk assessments that really compelled us to write this article. What it says about IPCC reports, not too much. So bear in mind that the IPCC, the Intergovernment Panel on Climate Change, doesn't actually do its own novel research per se. It synthesizes, summarizes, and reviews the existing li literature on climate impacts, the science of climate change, and mitigation, reducing emissions and adapting. So the IPCC is not a novel research body. It's really a very large scale institutional reviewer. And what we say is not really about the IPCC, what we're really talking about here is the problem of climate science and scholarship in general. Mm -hmm. And the main thing we point towards is that it simply is a neglectedness of extreme climate change scenarios. So those above three degrees. And more importantly, of catastrophic scenarios where we actually think through what are gonna be all the knock-on effects as we solve COVID-19, these knock-on effects can be actually quite dramatic. I heard you say that some studies are using GDP to measure the effects of climate change, and that is frankly pretty hard to hear. What What are some of the other metrics that you've looked at in your research that actually are better ways to gauge you know, human welfare or the ability to sustain life on this planet? And there's quite a few out there. So there's obviously things like the general progress indicator, GPI, uh, there's a wealth of different alternatives to GDP. One of the things we call for in our research is simply having direct mortality estimates. So in a very simple way, how many people are given a given climate change scenario? And on top of that, what's going to be likely morbidity, changes in illness and health? Those are surprisingly understudied and often not even incorporated into integrated assessment models sometimes. Yet ultimately they're kind of the biggest and most basic moral units we should be thinking about is you know suffering and death basically. And apart from that, I think one of the biggest problems is not what they're measuring. Of course, GDP, as we all know, is an incredibly incomplete and limited estimate. And GDP, just a bit of a background side story, it was largely invented by Simon Cousins during World War I and World War II as an indicator and measurement of both industrial and military capacity. It was a tool for war to understand the actual capacity of the state. It was never supposed to be a measurement of welfare. And yeah, that's what it's kind of morphed and been distorted into. All that aside, I think one of the bigger problems we have is not even the indicator we're using the measurement, it's how we're doing the measuring. And our existing analysis tends to be woefully simplistic. It usually hinges upon essentially trying to tally up individual impacts. So looking at what are the kind of damages from sea level rise, what's the damages from heat waves, and just kind of 
put them together in a fairly basic mathematical fashion. In reality, these things interconnect. They spill over. They have impacts on things like conflict, financial markets, etc. And this would be equivalent to thinking about COVID and just saying, ah, it's only going to kill this many number of people and hence cost this amount of GDP, rather than thinking about the knock-on effects, which end up being the biggest issue, actually, you know, the collapse of the healthcare system, the fact that we had to close off borders and restrict supply chains. You'd be missing all of that in the current way we actually think about climate risk. Mm. I'm curious to know from uh, your, your research, if climate change just stayed at the current projections of about two degrees temperature rise. What is that risk for governments and economies? So before we get to catastrophic climate change, just what do the current models project will happen by 2100? So it's worthwhile bearing in mind that two degrees could be catastrophic. Mm. So one of the things we make sure to mention in the article is that this is not just about the magnitude and the rate of warming. Of course, those things do matter. And as both your speed of warming and the amount of warming increases, the risks will increase. But we've made a mistake in the past by often making this fairly crude association between saying, ah, two degrees is really bad, six degrees equals catastrophe. And it's really not that simple. It's not just about the magnitude and rate of warming, it's about societal fragility. It's about how societies respond to climatic change. But bearing that in mind, and that two degrees itself could be catastrophic, depending upon how we respond and how fragile societies are to change. Some of the changes we can expect were billions of dollars of losses um, from both crop losses and forest fires. We can expect glacial melt rates to double um, during a two degrees rise. We can expect probably somewhere in the ballpark of 30,000 people to die prematurely due to heat exposure um, in Europe alone. We can also expect that Mediterranean countries will become more dry, hot, and desertified. You essentially will see the Sahara kind of creep northwards. Sea level rise of roughly 18 to 59 centimetres, which will displace both a number of different people in cities, but also potentially flood low-lying, some small low-lying island states. Monsoon will increase in both India and Bangladesh, potentially leading to mass migration. And you'll see crop production in many areas, particularly Africa, decrease. And at least according to one estimate back from 2004, we could see roughly a third of all species suffer potential extinction at two degrees Celsius rise. So there's already a slew of impacts that look pretty bad, and that's just the impacts that are direct. That's not even thinking about the potential knock-on effects and indirect impacts. Let's ask about the extreme end of things um, after this break. We have been speaking with Luke Kemp, the um, Research Associate with the Center for the Study of, Exis of Existential Risk. Correct. We will be right back. Welcome back to Panorama. I am talking to Luke Kemp, a Research Associate at the Center for the Study of Existential Risk at the University of Cambridge, and we're talking about catastrophic climate change. Luke, can you lay out uh, the arguments you make about catastrophic climate change um, how, what could potentially happen to global economies, countries, governments, if we experience potentially three, four, five, six degrees or higher climate change? Well, in short, we don't know, which is the worrisome thing. 
we do have estimates of some of the direct impacts, but even those are fairly sparse, particularly once you get to five and six degrees of warming. This has already been noted by some popular science writers who have tried to summarize the literature on climate impacts. So most notably, my friend Mark Linus, who has the book Six Degrees, Our Final Warning, where he basically tries to compile literature on different degrees of warming, all the way from one to six. And naturally, once you get to five and six, there tends to be very few studies, and most of those which are out there are usually looking more at geological precedents of how the world looked with six degrees more warming. We have an absolute abundance when it comes to one and two degrees. We actually did some proof. We did undertook some research which gave some evidential basis to what Mark Linus and others have found. So in both 2021 and 2022, myself and several other researchers led by Florian Yen at the University of Gießen did a text mining exercise of IPCC reports where we compared the mention of different temperaturized scenarios to the probability that we're actually going to experience those in the future, as well as looking at how they compare to one another. And what we found was that temperature of three degrees and above was steeply understudied compared to its probability. Mm. And it was also far less studied than 1.5 and two degrees Celsius. Why is that the case? Well, it's likely due to a couple of different reasons. One is that the Paris Climate Agreement of 2015 has channeled scientific attention towards 1.5 and 2 degrees Celsius, which are, after all, our international goals. Secondly, climate scientists have a very strong incentive to err on the side of least drama, to avoid being called a climate alarmist. And third, looking at these high temperature scenarios and also doing more complex risk assessments is just simply harder. And it's also often harder to get funding for as well. Can you talk a little bit about the feedback uh, loops of carbon cycles and tipping points, and specifically something I read in your article that said the possibility mm. of tipping cascade? What do some of the models predict would happen to average uh, cl temperature climate changes worldwide if we have some of these uh, tipping points? So a tipping point is essentially a error in the climate system in which once you push past a critical threshold, you activate self-propelling dynamics which may be irreversible and lead to a qualitative different state. So a good example of this is the loss of Arctic ice. As ice sheets melt, obviously you have less ice and ice is actually very reflective of sunlight. And hence, as you have less ice, you have less reflexivity and you have an increasing amount of water exposed, which actually soaks up sunlight. What that means in essence is that more solar radiation from the sun is absorbed into the Earth system rather than being reflected back into space. In very basic terminology, it means that as ice melts, you get more warming. As you get more warming, more ice melts. It becomes what scientists refer to as a positive feedback loop. And eventually you could have a tipping point in which you have an irreversible loss of ice melt. And you've, we've seen this for studies of the Antarctic ice sheet where we know once we get past two degrees, even if we return temperature levels back to their previous state, that wouldn't be enough. You wouldn't actually have or achieve the same configuration of ice on the Antarctic ice sheet. You'd actually have to go roughly two degrees below um, previous levels. Yeah, there's a range of different tipping points we can be worried about. So as mentioned, Arctic ice loss is one of them. 
The collapse of the West Antarctic ice sheet is also another one that's likely to experience probably around about two degrees Celsius. And there are many others, including conversion of the Amazon basin essentially into an aridified landscape into a savanna. Each of these is likely to be set off at different temperature rises, and there's still uncertainty about when that will occur. But there's two things we do know. One is that these are unlikely to be disconnected. And there's a real threat and fear about the idea of a tipping cascade, where your activation of one tipping element in the Earth system, whether that be ice sheets or the Amazon, increases the probability that another tipping element will be activated. It basically increases the probability you have a domino effect. The second thing we do know is that with each new assessment from the IPCC, as well as each new assessment of tipping points, it seems that tipping points are more likely to get activated at lower temperatures. So essentially, the more we know, the more worried we become. And this has become much clearly articulated in an excellent review published about two weeks ago by David Armstrong Mackay and a few others looking at doing, which basically synthesized and reviewed the evidence we have in tipping points. And what they found was that quite a large number could be activated at roughly 1.5 to 2 degrees Celsius. Mm. So even 2 degrees may not be safe if we activate these uh, system tipping points. And I just wanted to note that um, as we're recording this episode, there has been a pipeline ruptured between Russia and Europe, the Nord Stream, which is releasing yeah. an unprecedented amount of methane into the atmosphere. The article I'm looking at is saying 100,000 metric tons so far. And I want to say that as humans, we are also fully capable of pushing us off these tipping points. <laughs> thanks. Um, thanks. Uh, in reading your article, I was struck by a lot of things, but one that, that definitely stuck with me, a sentence where you wrote that recent simulations suggest that the stratocumulus cloud decks might abruptly be lost by the end of the century, causing an additional eight sure. degree temperature global warming. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? And um, what, what would be the ramifications of an eight-degree temperature? I guess we don't know the answer, but how close can we get to that um, from, from whatever small number of uh, research models that have actually looked at six? So it's worthwhile bearing in mind that this means eight degrees additional warming on top of the warming you already have when you have stratus cumulus cloud breakup. So this is based upon an article published in 2019 where they tried to look at how do stratocumulus clouds react to high levels of carbon dioxide in a, a very simple model? So stratocumulus clouds are some of the most common clouds in the world. They cover roughly 20% of tropical ocean. And they're these fluffy clouds that obviously reflect the light of the sunlight. And so what they basically do is actually help to cool the Earth by reflecting sunlight back into space. This model found that once you get to roughly 1,200 parts per million in carbon dioxide. And keep in mind, this is a very high amount. Roughly, we only have, currently have around about 400 to 450. Once you get to roughly 1,200, which is plausible, but definitely the much higher end of what's, of what's possible, you potentially have a dynamic in which the concentration of carbon in the atmosphere essentially causes these clouds to dissipate. They start to break apart. And as they do, of course, more sunlight, more solar radiation gets into the Earth system. The Earth becomes hotter. And hotter is the extent where it may actually add on eight degrees to what you already have. And bear in mind that if we had 1,200 parts per million, that's already a good chance we have six degrees. 
And so that would be an additional eight degrees on top of that six degrees. So 14 altogether. How would that look? Depends on how far you want to cast your eye into the future. It would, in the long term, certainly be a mass extinction event. Bear in mind the Great Permian dying was somewhere around six to eight degrees Celsius on a much shorter time scale. And work by Daniel Rothman at the Massachusetts at MIT has suggested that you potentially get mass extinction level kind of lock in, even potentially much lower levels. Um, he has looked at how the carbon system is potentially one of the big drivers of mass extinction events. And in particular, he looks more at how much carbon needs to be soaked up by the oceans. And by his estimates, we could get there even if we have kind of low to medium levels of anthropogenic emissions. Uh, if we get six to 14 degrees of warming, we'll, we'll be well beyond a mass extinction event. And what causes mass extinctions tends to be both oceans become anoxic, they basically become deprived of oxygen, they become dead zones for most marine life. That causes the creation of bacteria, which basically create, which basically release hydrogen sulfide into the atmosphere, which in turn kills a lot of uh, different life on Earth, uh, on terrestrial ground, I should say. So that's one of the main kill mechanisms, geologically speaking, if you will. Um, but of course, it's a sheer number of different species that'll die will cause will cause ripple effects across um, food webs. There's just an enormous number of different effects this will have, and it's hard to point paint a picture of just how bad this could really be. Mm. Um, I think it's still debatable as to whether humans could survive. We are, of course, incredibly adaptable. But to me personally, it becomes a roll of the dice. And I personally wouldn't be willing to be risking that the, uh, that humans can survive in such an unprecedented and unexperienced climate. And bear in mind, we haven't experienced anything that actually goes beyond two degrees of warming. We're not anatomically completely unadapted for that. Thank you for that, Luke. We have been speaking with Luke Kemp, an associate researcher with the Center for the Study of Existential Risk at the University of Cambridge. And when we come back, how about we talk about what understanding these risks means um, for finding solutions and keeping people alive? We'll, we'll be right back. Welcome back to Panorama. I am your co-host Dan Torres here with Sarah Robertson, and we're talking to Luke Kemp, a research associate at the Center for the Study of Existential Risk at the University of Cambridge in the UK. Sarah, you had a question. Yes, Luke. I wanted to ask you um, about the viability of humans geoengineering the climate to avoid some of these risks. I know we wanted to put aerosols in the sky to block out some of the sun. I know there's carbon mm. capture technologies. Um, do you see these making a dent in some of the uh, catastrophic climate impacts that you've described to us? Are they viable? Yes, although that varies by the technology. Are they wise? Perhaps not, but once again, that varies by the technology. The general rule of thumb here is that negative emissions, so finding ways to draw carbon dioxide and greenhouse gases out of the atmosphere and somehow store it, is going to be a safer but much more expensive option. On the other hand, stratospheric aerosol injection, pumping up aerosols which reflect sunlight into the atmosphere, kind of treating the world like a global thermostat, that's going to be far cheaper, potentially with low billions of dollars, but it's going to potentially be much more risky. 
So myself and Aaron Tang at the Australian National University published a paper last year titled Worse Than Warming, sorry, A Fate Worse Than Warming question mark, where we explored the potential catastrophic impacts of stratospheric aerosol injection. In short, a key conclusion is we don't really know because there's been a sheer lack of studies on this, even less than looking at extreme climate change. It seems at this stage unlikely that the direct impacts would be catastrophic insofar as we have examples that are analogous to stratospheric aerosol injection. And these are volcanic eruptions throughout history, which do emit a large amount of aerosols into the atmosphere. And in the short term, they often led to cooling of one degree or more. The useful thing here is that aerosols wash out of the atmosphere quite quickly, usually within a few years. That is in some ways, of course, grounds for optimism that we can experiment with this, we can potentially use it, and we're not locked in. That being said, we also don't know if there's potentially unknown tipping points in the Earth system or atmosphere. We also do know it's going to change precipitation patterns. It's going to change things like vector-borne diseases and a whole bunch of other things, which of course will have knock-on effects. Whether that will be worse than the warming we're offsetting is questionable. The key conclusion that Aaron and I reached is that what stratospheric aerosol injection does is it changes your distribution of risk, where the average scenario is likely to be better, but your tail risk where things go really wrong is likely to be worse. And the reason for that is termination shock. This is what happens when your aerosol injection system is knocked out quickly and for a long period of time. So if, for instance, we had a solar flare, which is essentially a expulsion of electromagnetic radiation from the sun. And these happen kind of randomly throughout history, but they do seem to happen semi-frequently. It would knock out all electrical infrastructure with, as far as we know, including in stratospheric aerosol injection system. Similarly, if we had a nuclear war or a really bad pandemic, anything that could potentially upset and disrupt the infrastructure underpinning aerosol injection. If that happened and it kept it offline for long enough, then what you'd see is the aerosols would wash out of the system, again, over the space of years, and the warming would come back, but at this time at an accelerated rate. Because instead of greenhouse gases slowly creeping up, you're basically going from a system in which the aerosols are offsetting things to suddenly going back to that thick concentration of greenhouse gases. And so you potentially could see you know, three or four degrees, depending on how much you're offsetting, occur in the space of decades rather than a century or more. And the speed of warming matters, and that would be completely, utterly unprecedented and really quite scary. But of course, that's only if you have one of these absolute calamities which knocks the system out long enough. And if we're willing to bank on the fact that that won't happen, then it may be a decent idea. If we are really worried about these tail risks and these worst case scenarios, then it perhaps isn't. And of course, this all depends upon how the system is done. You know, is it done multilaterally or is it imposed by a single country? There's a lot of open questions, including also how much we use it. Is it used to offset one degree of warming or five or four? So in short, this really just more of a set of considerations you have to think about. I think stratospheric LCR injection could be worse than warming, but under most scenarios, it's probably going to be better. This is something as democracies we need to decide upon. Can you talk a little bit about the risk for pathogens if the Arctic ice uh, begin to melt? I, I at least have uh, come over an article mm. that discussed the possibility that there are uh, essentially 
uh, diseases that have been trapped in that ice that humans have never been exposed to. I mean, uh, there's so many, I guess, unknown. Mm. You, you even mentioned this term, unknown unknowns. Like, we don't know yep. what, what's underneath that. Can, has any scientist taken a look at, at what that risk would be for us? It's an area I'm not as familiar with. This is usually referred to as zombie diseases. So ones that have been around have essentially lain dormant and could reemerge. This is not a, a particularly large area of study, particularly relative to the ongoing research we have on disease, vector-borne disease, food-borne disease, waterborne disease. What we do know quite robustly is that climate change is going to increase the likelihood of zoonotic infections. So things like COVID-19 mm. emerging in the future. It's going to increase vector-borne diseases, including things like malaria, which is already one of the biggest killers in the world. And it's also going to increase things like waterborne and foodborne illnesses. Zombie pathogens very well could happen. I'm not sure what the exact research that says, but it's an additional point of concern. Can you just draw us a, a little clearer picture of what would happen to islands or major cities if we experienced four, five, six degree temperature rises? I mean, you, you talk about inequality, uh, health uh, care outcomes. What's the impact on GDP? I mean, it, is some of this calculable? I mean, are we just looking at trillions of dollars of lost productivity in healthcare and things like that? Well, as mentioned, there have been some estimates of GDP loss, but I don't trust them or how they're calculated. Right. Um, so giving even just one small example of how warped these can be, they often use what's called a discount rate, which is essentially you decrease the value of future goods and services by a certain amount. And that could be 1.4% or 7% or something else. And it's based upon a number of different considerations. One is GDP growth that if we assume GDP will grow into the future, it means future generations will be richer, and hence the impacts will be less relative to their, to their wealth. Another is simply that humans appear to, according to psychological studies, often prefer to have things now rather than the future. So I offered you a candy bar right now in comparison to the future. You're going to prefer it now to quite a large extent in comparison to getting a year's time. And we also embed that kind of preference what we call the pure rate of time preference into economic models. But of course, if you have a good or a service or an impact on climate change being discounted by 5% per year, that adds up very quickly. And suddenly when you're looking decades in the future, you're basically discounting almost to 100% or beyond. So just bear that in mind. But in terms of what it could look like, I mean, once you get to six degrees, you're probably going to lose somewhere around about 70% of the Antarctic ice sheet as well as many others. And what that means is you're probably looking at sea level rise of 20 meters or above eventually. Keep in mind that this happens over very long time seasons. So we're talking thousands of years, most likely. But that is, of course, the kind of time scales we should be thinking about, particularly when we think about these kind of worst case scenarios like human extinction. I don't think human extinction is going to happen anytime soon. But you know, once we stretch things out to thousands or tens of thousands of years, they become more interesting questions. We're, we're talking here with Luke Kemp, uh, research associate at the Center for the Study of Existential Risk at the University of Cambridge in the UK, and we'll be right back here on Panorama.
and welcome back to Panorama. My name is Sarah Robertson, and I'm here with my co-host, Dan Torres, and we are speaking with Luke Kemp, a research associate with the Center for the Study of Existential Risk at the University of Cambridge in the UK. Something valuable about studying most extreme impacts of climate change are is our ability to prepare for these emergencies. Catastrophic hurricanes like we just saw in Florida, severe flooding, droughts, wildfires. So what about your research is, is helping us? Uh, what do you hope your research helps us understand about preparing for these disasters? So there's several ways in which can help in preparation. It's worthwhile keeping in mind that first of all, when we think about extreme risk, it changes the very way in which we do policy. You know, things like calculating the social cost of carbon, how what's the damage in the future that each individual ton of carbon does, that changes quite dramatically if you start to look at things like risk cascades, knock-on effects, and higher temperature scenarios. Likewise, in most areas of life where we need to do decision-making under large uncertainty, we often use things like what's called the mini-max principle, where you basically rank options by the worst-case outcomes, which means you have to understand the worst case. And of course, if you want to stop these potential knock-on effects from occurring, you have to understand them in advance. So imagine in the case of COVID-19 that we knew one of the big issues here could be the collapse of the healthcare system because there's simply too many people sick, overwhelming the hospital. What would that mean? Well, of course, you'd probably up your capacity in terms of, um, in terms of ICU units. It's only once you actually start thinking about these risk cascades and these knock-on effects that you can really start to think about interventions to stop them from actually occurring in the first place. And likewise, if you think that a Category 6 hurricane is going to be likely in the future, then you should start building infrastructure and updating infrastructure to be prepared for that. So forewarned is forearmed. And what we're doing here is really trying to help prepare for resilience in the most comprehensive way possible, rather than doing any kind of disaster voyeurism and just looking at the worst case scenario for the hell of it. I had a question for you, Luke. This one mm -hmm. is uh, about government policy. So a yep. lot of people with money love buying properties in front of oceans. And let's just say we have climate change. We were talking about potentially uh, destroying um, homes in front of the ocean, right? Now, a lot of places here in the United States, they can't buy private insurance anymore. So they buy flood insurance or catastrophic insurance directly from the federal government. Now, if climate change happens and it takes away their home, they have an insurance policy, which really means that the government itself is going to be paying that uh, individual. Is that, is that a question of, of fairness? Why should people be paying taxes and incurring debt to basically pay the insurance of rich individuals who have the financial means to build a home near the ocean. This is a, a recurring issue, not just for climate change and civil rights, but even, for example, when it comes to bushfires in Australia. And the case of bushfires in Australia, it's more complicated. It's not just rich individuals. But there is some like, should individuals be building houses in areas which we know are likely to be exposed to dangerous conditions in the future? with the expectation that government's going to eventually bail them out. It becomes what's commonly referred to as a moral hazard. And of course, we have exactly the same thing when it comes to the financial industry. There's now a belief that you can trash the economy like happened in 2008, and of course, the government's still going to bail you out. So yes, it is a problem, and it probably is unfair. I don't think there's really too much to be said apart from that. 
Yeah. I mean, it's something that governments are going to have to look at to say, well, I won't buy you insurance if you want to build it. The risk is on you, the individual, and you'll have to take that risk, which means you could be putting your entire life into that property and you may lose it. Nobody knows with 100 percent certainty. There's no models that guarantee it. Yeah. yeah, I'm frankly just very upset by the idea of climate change just exacerbating inequality globally. Like the yeah. people who can, aff- who can afford to get away from it will and those who can't. Who knows? Yeah. Uh, yeah, so one yeah. of my separate lines of work, apart from climate change or alongside climate change, is looking at past societal classes and transformations. So I have a book being published at Penguin next year titled Goliath's Curse, A Short History and Future of Societal Collapse. One recurring phenomenon I find is that you can have a same state or polity face a particular kind of climatic shock. And at one stage, they deal with it quite well, another one, they fall apart. And the big difference seems to be in the latter case, they're almost always more unequal and they're facing more extractive political institutions. And I think this is one of the key things we try to get across in Climate Endgame. It's not just simply about the impacts of climate change, it is about how society is structured. And I think inequality makes societies dramatically more vulnerable and susceptible to climatic, climatic impacts. I had this question always lingering in my mind as I was reading some of your research. Why do you suspect, and this is just your suspicion, that climate mm. scientists haven't explored in more detail the potential for three or four degree temperature rises or even above. I mean, what's holding them back? Is, is it like you said, is it just being worried that you're uh, an exaggerating the threat and it's not going to be funded? Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, so I think I already more or answered that on the previous responses. I think it's a combination of a the goals for Paris Agreement have really channeled scientific attention and funding towards 1.5 and 2 degrees Celsius. B, it's harder to look at high temperature scenarios, and it's also harder to do more complex, complete risk assessments. You know, it's very easy by comparison just to say, we'll have sea level rise of 15 to 59 centimetres. Here's the area that's going to flood. Here's the direct GDP costs, rather than looking at all the kind of cascade knock-on effects within the economy. And it's even harder than think about how all those things can interlink in terms of impacts, mm. um, in, including things like igniting conflict, causing political change, right. uh, potential uh, food price shocks the works. And of course, those are the things that actually are going to occur and that we need to understand. And third is scientists do have this incentive to earn the side of least drama and to not be accused of being climate alarmists. So we have very good work on what's being called the merchants of doubt, how the fossil fuel industry has employed the same scientists and tactics as tobacco and the industries involved of ozone cleaning substances previously used. And what that's done is both basically cast a large amount of doubt on the initial science of climate change. I mean, bear in mind, even just a decade or two ago, it was very common that if you were going to go and speak about climate change in public, you'd often be paired against the denier to debate with or there at least be a couple of denies in the audience. That has changed, luckily, but you know, historically that was kind of the norm. And that was not because of the actual state of climate science, it was because of merchants of doubt. And one of the key things merchants of doubt did, apart from just casting doubts in the science of climate change, was to come up with this idea of climate alarmism. That if you talk about bad to dire impacts or scenarios, you're clearly being alarmist. You're being unrealistic and you're causing such an amount of fear and fervor that you're actually going to paralyze people 
And I think that's been one of the, the lasting legacies that's really held back our research in this area. Luke, I did want to ask you, you, you work for the Center for the Study of Existential Risk, and you're writing a book about societal collapse, and you spend all day steeped in these ideas in this research. How do you, how do you carry on in your personal life when, you, when, when you're faced with this, these, these huge questions about like, human existence? Well, you often have an inside joke in the field that studying catastrophic risks tends to self-select for people with an unnaturally high baseline happiness. So <laughs> that may be part of it. I'm actually a fairly happy-go-lucky kind of person. I think a lot of it is also just these scenarios become so large and abstract that sometimes it's easier to emotionally distance yourself from them. I know personally when I've been reading literature on genocide and democide, I found that to be much more harrowing and discomforting than reading about, say, six degrees of warming. Even though, of course, six degrees, in terms of sheer loss of life and suffering, may actually be much, much worse. But nonetheless, it's when you can actually place a very direct human face upon things, often the more kind of small scale, it becomes much more emotionally sensitive than when you think about these really big scenarios. And you know, there's an unfortunate truth to the old saying from Stalin that one man's death is statistic, a million, sorry, one man's death is a tragedy, a million is a statistic. Go ahead, sorry. Oh, and I was, I, I also just kind of wanted to say, um, what do you hope that people can gain from reading about your research and understanding these potentially massive risks um, from climate change? Like to to a layperson, what do you hope the the takeaway is? What should we, what should I change about my life and the way that I go about driving my car and burning fossil fuels every day? <laughs> I think to take climate change much more seriously, particularly at a political level, we all know ultimately what needs to be happen in order to address climate change, and the strongest lever for change is politics, not personal consumption. And if you really think that climate change could result in a global catastrophe or even the long term something even worse then that should be influencing the way you vote for instance and it should be influencing your political actions but of course as we mentioned in the article these are both plausible reasons for concern there's good reasons to think that these kind of scenarios are plausible but we also do need further research and so this is also a carrying call to the research community to rally and start to do much better research at looking at these worst case scenarios and informing the public in the best way possible. Well, leave it there. That, that sounds like a, a great way to end it. We were talking to Luke Kemp here on Panorama. He is a research associate at the Center for the Study of Existential Risk at the University of Cambridge in the UK. And we've been talking about catastrophic climate change what people can do, what everybody can do, what hopefully political officials will do in the future in order to mitigate the potential risk. Luke Kemp, thanks for coming on Panorama. I really appreciate the conversation today. My pleasure. Thanks, Dan and yeah. Sarah.